Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back. It is my great privilege and honor today to introduce my special guest, Mike Restuccia, CIO of Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. Mike, what a pleasure to have you on the show and welcome. Patty, thanks so much for allowing me to join your show and your, your podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate that. What does your post-COVID normal look like at Penn Medicine? I guess that's the topic on most people's minds today with, you know, the vaccinations and everything. What does the new normal look like? What are you really preparing for in the next phase, especially from a technology standpoint? Yeah, Patty, in many ways, the post-COVID normal looks like a lot, like the pre-COVID normal, plus a plethora of other responsibilities and activities. And thus you could say that the post-normal will be even more frenetic than in the past. And you know those things that we'll see much more of in addition to what we had been focusing on pre was expansion and run and maintain and growth and all those EHR type things. When you look at the post, it's all those things plus more tele, plus more engagement, plus more expansion, plus more monitoring of patients in a remote manner, all big lifts from an IS perspective. So, you know, in many ways, I feel like we had a pretty substantive role and job as a team pre-pandemic and post, it just doubles or triples and there's no sign that it's going to slow down. That's actually a very interesting observation. Now, we've seen that in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of the telehealth modalities that you alluded to and virtual care models in general have gained a lot of ground. Now, when you look at the broad marketplace and the trends in the healthcare sector, Mike, and also changes in the competitive landscape, digital health startups and big tech firms and non-traditional players and so on. Could you maybe talk to us about the top two or three trends that you tend to track at a leadership level at Penn Medicine? How do those trends drive your technology priorities? Yeah, for sure. We'll start with tele. Pre-pandemic, we were doing a few hundred televisits a month. At its peak, in the middle of the pandemic, we were doing over 8,000 televisits a day. And now it's plateaued since to somewhere around 3,000-ish per day, but that's still significantly higher than where we were pre-pandemic. And so tele is, as mentioned previously, is here to stay. It's an area that we really need to pay more attention to. I think from a maturity perspective, we have a pretty good solution in place, but there are other vendors to your point that are rapidly advancing their telemedicine 
delivery capabilities. And to us, integration with our electronic health record is critical. Our patients love it, our providers love it, and getting more integration in the future with our electronic health record, I think is, is a key activity for us that we're looking at. Changing gears a little bit, you had mentioned, and I had mentioned uh, remote monitoring, whether in the home or in particular, Patty, within our ICUs across our six hospital enterprise, we have uh, almost 250 ICU beds. And each one of them, virtually each and every one of them, is now monitored with a camera connected to a central location, thus tele-ICU, uh, for 24 by 7 monitoring and care. It helps, obviously, from a delivery of care perspective. It helps from a responsiveness perspective. It also helps from a staffing perspective, because those six hospitals are located basically in a 150 mile radius. And so having proper staffing for those locations is mission critical. And then I think the third thing that I would speak to is just enhanced patient engagement. And that engagement can take place either through, predominantly through your patient portal in order to do deliver results, in order to schedule appointments, administrative types of tasks, bill paying, communicating with your clinical team, but also from another mechanism, Patty, and, and that is us actually pushing information and alerts to our patients. And we saw that pretty significantly, again, through the pandemic, and it was a new opportunity for us where when we began to reopen our patient clinics after having uh, ambulatory clinics, after having them shut down and reopening our hospitals for non-essential surgeries, we went through and began a texting campaign, an interactive texting campaign that communicated with patients just on their, their phone and basically said, hey, we know you're coming in in 24 hours or 48 hours. We wanna ask you a series of questions and just respond with one or two or yes or no to, to these, very simple. Based upon the responses to those questions, the patient would either be cleared or the employee would be cleared to come back to work, patient would be cleared to come to the clinic, or it would be triaged off to a care team so that if the patient responded, you know, I, I've really been having these symptoms and they're COVID-like, probably don't want that patient arriving in the clinic. We want the care team reaching out to them at that point in time. Another good example of engaging the patient through some type of technology, albeit pretty low-level technology. Yeah. How have your patients and your consumers responded to the shift towards a more digital mode of engagement? And for that matter, how has your caregiver community responded? Because it's also important for the caregivers to be familiar with the technologies you use. You need to train them and maybe change some workflows and so on. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that experience felt like for you? I'll start with the patients first, and it's a bit more anecdotal than it is scientific responses. But I think what we consistently heard from the majority of patients, and, and there is some differentiation based upon perhaps age or technical savviness or, or, or whatever it might be, but people were thankful. Patients were thankful that we were paying attention, 
that we were contacting them and we showed we were concerned. Concerned for their health as well as the health of the caregivers, as well as the health of any other patients that might be in the general vicinity. So I thought that and uh, we overall was a pretty big win. Uh, and anytime you get a chance to engage a patient and make it positive, that's a big win. And I think we really extended our brand loyalty and we expanded our care and concern and communicated that to our patients. From the caregiver's perspective, you're exactly right that, you know, it's a pretty big change in workflow as you have to go through multiple steps just to see a patient. Overall, again, I think the response was mixed, but overall it was much more positive than negative because interestingly, there was segmentation of those physicians that were very comfortable using the technology and actually embraced the concept of using a telemedicine type approach. They could see more patients, there was less downtime, there was a higher adherence rate to the meeting, thus less no-shows, that there was just more flow that took place. On the other hand, there were still some that said, a televisit is okay occasionally, but I need to see that patient. I need them next to me. I need to observe more than just how they're interacting through the screen. Yeah. Just to stay on that for one more minute, I stay on that topic. You mentioned that your uh, telehealth visits went up to about 8,000 a day from about a few hundred a month. And then they've dropped back to about 3,000 a day today, which is kind of the typical experience across the country as well as, uh, you know, we start opening up and patients start coming back into the hospital and so on. Have you reached uh, some kind of an equilibrium, you think? Are you designing the future based on this equilibrium? What does it look like for you going forward? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think we've reached an equilibrium for now. And remember, there's a lot of pent-up demand to come back and see in person, which sort of impacts the decline and that plateauing. My sense is that we will have another bump in our use of tele, and, and it'll be for several reasons. One is we will have gone through that pent-up demand for in-person visits. Secondly, I think we've learned that not every visit has to be in person and that you can have some balance or ratio of visits per patient. Maybe it's one in person and two virtual visits type of an approach or one to three, whatever it might be. I think we're, we're figuring that out. And third of all, I think the strength of Penn Medicine is its breadth, diversity of care that we provide. And as we can expand that further, it will support more and more tele type of uh, engagement. Yeah. You mentioned breadth. Uh, now, Penn Medicine, of course, is a very unique institution, the first hospital in the country, quite a historical heritage there, if you will. And of course, you're a leading academic institution, a research institution, and a healthcare delivery organization. So that makes you, you know, very unique in terms of your mission. And, and when you look at it from a technology standpoint, especially from the point of view of you know, your strategic technology partnerships to drive your mission, how do you look at it? How do you harness all that your incumbent technology partners have to provide to you, but also 
tap into the innovation ecosystem, if you will, to drive the organization forward. Let me start with our, our partnerships, Patty. Maybe this is where it gets a little boring, but we believe in few and deep partnership relationships. We are not an organization that has five different vendors providing 12 different solutions for the same cause. We will generally go with one vendor across the board and implement common systems, centrally managed, collaboratively installed. And I think that works really, really well, whether it's on the networking side, the EHR side, whether it's telephony, whatever it might be, that's our approach because standards and systemness across the enterprise is our approach to things. And as you mentioned, we are focused on patient care, research, and teaching. I think there's 121-ish academic medical centers in, in the country, and we're one of them. And it is a unique mission. It requires more and more integration amongst those three towers than ever. And when we talk a little bit maybe later about our approach towards genomics and bleeding that into patient care and precision medicine and precision health, these are exciting times. That's where it gets real exciting and flashy and sexy in the types of things that we're doing that really are transforming care. But from a partnership perspective, you know, several solutions at most, deep relationships common across the system is really the, the attributes that we seek. Now, I'm sure that uh, your strategic partners deliver much of what you need from them, but in all likelihood, they don't deliver everything that you need. They don't. Especially when it comes to maybe some of the uh, newer kind of capabilities that you're looking for in an emerging yep. future. So when you realize that your existing partnerships maybe don't have what you need. How do you go about sourcing it from elsewhere or for that matter, building it internally? Could you talk to us about your approach? Yeah, regardless of whether our partners are providing the proper solution or not, we're always looking to innovate. And that's within corporate IS, as well as in partnership with our Center for Healthcare Innovation, which is a close ally and very dependent upon corporate IS, as, as you might suspect. So Center for Healthcare Innovation is part of Penn Medicine. It's led by uh, Dr. David Ash and Roy Rosen. And they have a team that's focused on what is that next thing we should be doing in order to either improve efficiency, care, accelerate research. And their team is very focused on new technologies as well as new workflows and new endeavors. They are very dependent upon corporate IS for those networks, for the data, for the project leadership in order to advance some of those causes. Generally, the way it works, Patty, is the Center for Healthcare Innovation will identify an opportunity. They will organize the appropriate constituents because, as you know, there's more than IS and more than big thinkers that need to be in the room. There needs to be operational assistance, clinical assistance, perhaps research assistance participating. They get that organized and then generally perform a proof of concept to see if the thought really does hold water. If it does, then we try to do a pilot 
And then we look, once the pilot is completed, to determine whether corporate IS should try to scale it across the enterprise. So I think that's kind of the approach we've taken internally in order to advance our causes. And often, whether it's improving access to a particular department, whether it's uh, making care more convenient for patients and introducing mechanisms that patients don't have to come on site as much, be treated more in the home. Those are like examples of how the Center for Innovation has, has advanced certain causes. Now, for digital health startup founders listening to this discussion, and they have a question on their minds, and very often I get the question from them, how do we reach out to Mike or someone like Mike to showcase our solution or our capability. What's your advice to those who want to be a part of this and may have something, may have an interesting story? Yeah, people find ways to get to myself and Roy Rosen and Dr. Ash. There's no challenge there. We're pretty public figures. And, and so, you know, we encourage them to reach out and, and share their ideas and their thoughts. And we look at them, we look at them all. I think uh, whether it's patient care, whether it's access to care, whether it's engagement with the patient, I think all those things are, are things we're readily looking at on a daily basis to try to improve things. And you know, as you highlighted at the start of this talk, we've made a lot of advances because of the pandemic and there's more to come. So I think we have this spirit of being able to introduce now and things that were once thought to be not possible are now very, state-of-the-art and very day-to-day -day and very probable. And certainly, who would have thought you could go from 300 to 8,000 televisits? Seemed impossible, but when you focus on it, you can get it done. And it did happen. We do have many people that reach out to us and find their way into the pen medicine ecosystem environment through some way, shape, or form. It might be through a friend they have here that works at the health system. It might be through a board member. It might be through some other channel. And it just arrives on our lap. And hey, here's a really good guy with a really good team and a really good product. And so, Mike, you guys ought to do it. Well, the first few times that scenario took place, we sort of took a stab at trying to figure out, wow, you know, this person was recommended and their team, their companies recommend, they must be good. I think what we learned, Patty, is that just because a person says they're good doesn't mean they necessarily are. And we spent a lot of cycles trying to understand the firm's stability, their product, their ability to need support, their ability to secure any data that we might share with them their potential for long-term sustainability. And as a result of a, a few, I would say, initial misses, we introduced a committee. It's a multidisciplinary committee that I co-chair with Roy Rosen from the Center of uh, Healthcare Innovation. Uh, we call it the New Technology Review. And before we go too far with any new potential partner, we ask them to come through tell us a little bit about themselves and then present to the committee so that we can see them one-on-one -on -one, face to face and better understand what their capabilities are. And that process has dramatically reduced our misses. It's really improved our efficiency. 
It's improved communication and effectiveness as we move forward with some of these newer technologies and firms. And overall has been a big benefit to smoothing the waters here and keeping people focused on what's most important. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Staying on the topic, now obviously when you get new solutions in, you have to make sure it works seamlessly within your overall technology environment and also deliver a seamless experience to whoever is consuming the technology, whether it's your caregivers or your patients or members as the case may be. And that can be quite a challenge in in the healthcare context. What are the top, maybe one or two challenges that you have had to uh, overcome, especially when harnessing innovation from the marketplace, as opposed to innovation from within your existing technology partnerships? I think it's um, always, and this isn't just recently, but it's probably, we've all experienced in our careers, it's the the overselling, the overpromising, and then the under-delivering. And you know, some of the firms have really, really solid sales teams or business development teams, and they have a really great vision. On the flip side, they don't really have the delivery mechanism tied to it. And so, you know, you get the, the sales pitch, you get the, hey, it's going to be great. And then the delivery team comes in and you end up short. And then that's where my team ends up having to cover and pick up the slack because by then the idea has been sold, it's been budgeted, leadership's expecting some results. And when the vendor falls short, that to me is uh, one of the biggest problems we've experienced. Let's switch topics for, for a second. In my podcast, we've had uh, some of your leadership team members uh, come and join us as well. And one of the things that has fascinated me about uh, some of these conversations, in fact, I want to talk about two of them. One of them is your, let's start with the first one, which is your data and analytics program. And you've made great strides you know, with your data and analytics program. You referred uh, earlier on in this conversation to genomic data and how you're harnessing genomic data. You tell us a little bit about what is the overall mission when it comes to your data and analytics program? What are you, uh, how are you supporting the three different missions, you know, the academic, the research, and the healthcare delivery side of it? and maybe a couple of big uh, successes or learnings you've had in the journey. Oh, for sure. You know, I think you mentioned the term, what's the vision? And I'm pretty sure I'm not the greatest one with vision, but members of my team are. And, you know, using that construct of common systems, centrally managed, collaboratively installed, if you keep that as the overriding umbrella, the spirit around analytics was we need a centralized location where we could house patient care data, research data, whether it's biobanking, biotissue, genomic data, and any other types of demographic data into one location. We call that location now uh, PenGNP. PenGNP is Pen Genomics and uh, Phenotype. And that data is initially loaded in in Roth data format. So if someone wants to reach in and grab raw data, they can, if they're savvy enough to do that, the data is available for them. We then move up a tier and we synthesize that raw data and homogenize it into common data definitions, common data model, and accessible with common tools. Probably a little bit easier then for an end user to reach in and grab what they want at some point. 
But again, it's a common location that we're zeroed in on. And then finally, what we will do is move that data off into data marts. So we might have a patient safety and quality mart. We might have a clinical care mart. We might have a research mart that has just that specific domain data associated with it. We do all this now through the Azure cloud, which we found, again, makes access to the data even easier. Utilization of standard tools that are accessible to all. And really now, Patty, with a goal of having our end users be less self-reliant on our data access team and more reliant on themselves through self-service. Right. And I do think that's going to be a, that will continue to be a big lift for us as it is for many other organizations in how we communicate and educate that end user community and liberate the data for their use and so that they're not as dependent upon us. I think um, some of the big successes that perhaps we've seen, and you touched upon one, is we were one of the first, if not the first, to begin to take uh, discrete genomic lab results from one of our lab partners and integrate that into our electronic health record and put a whole program in place on how to make that work, utilizing our uh, genomics team, genomics counselors, members of our cancer center, and then certainly our end user clinical staff community and making sure that when this genomic result shows up in a patient's chart, the patient is well aware of what the result was and then what the implications are to the caregiver because many of them require some level of training and education on how to uh, discern what that variant result might be. Yeah, of course, when we talk about data analytics uh, and insights, we have to talk about AI as well. And the term AI, of course, means a lot of things to a lot of people. And if anything, the buzz around AI just seems to be increasing. And I'm not sure you know, what degree of success people are accomplishing consistently across the board. But I'd love to hear how you've been able to leverage these advanced analytics tools you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, whatever you choose to call it, in the context of your data and analytics programs. Yeah. So underneath that banner that I talked about earlier of over-promising and under-delivering, I think AI fits that banner and fits in that bucket. And I don't think I'm the only one that would say that. Certainly, you're more connected in the industry than I am. But I do have hope for it because... Much like innovation was a you know four-letter word a bunch of years ago, AI is becoming a, a four-letter word because it's just over-promised at this point with limited tangible results. But it doesn't mean that we're not making strides towards it being more and more beneficial. We are taking a two-pronged approach towards AI. The first is a top-down approach. Whereas we will work with members of the vendor community who claim to have this algorithm that if you give it the right data in the right format at the right time and the right sequence, it'll tell you something. It might tell you whether you're going to have a higher no-show rate, whether there's going to be a health deterioration, whether sepsis is on the horizon, whatever it might be. And that's our top-down approach where Globally, we'll just lay it over the enterprise. But we've had minimal success with that so far. 
We also have a bottom-up approach. So I have a team of seven, eight data scientists that work in a more discreet manner with our end user community. And they work with very passionate clinicians or researchers who claim they have this great idea. And if only, you know, they've observed certain things, if only they had data on those things, it could be combined again in some way, we could develop an in-house algorithm that would bring great benefit to the group. And and I think, you know, we've seen that uh, particularly in at-home care We see that in palliative care where we've predicted certain occurrences that will take place, Um, but that's in a very narrow tower. It's not as broad as my top-down approach. So we will continue on both streams because we think there's really great hope. We are big believers that the answers are in the data or are often in the data, and we just have to get better at figuring out how to combine that data in order to generate a proper result. That's a very well-balanced articulation of the promise and the potential and the actual performance of AI today. And like you, I'm optimistic about the future of AI as well. So, Mike, one of the things that I've learned about you is that you spend a lot of time on your people, perhaps more than half your time on your people. Tell us about what you do and how do you ensure you know, that you're attracting, retaining, and nurturing talent within the organization, because all of this technology and all of these new programs, they're, they're only as good as the people who are committed to making it all work. So talk to us a little bit about that. Patty, when I joined Penn Medicine 14 years ago, 95% of our IS services were outsourced to third-party vendors. And that was done 20 plus years ago for a variety of reasons, cost containment, standardization of uh, delivery capabilities. But what I was asked to do was help build a team that would insource the majority of those services. Because if you're gonna have world-class clinicians and world-class researchers and real world-class educators, you better have world-class IS in order to enable it. You're generally not gonna get that passion and commitment from a third party. So my job was to, one of my jobs was to rebuild the team internally. That took about three or four years to insource approximately 95% of all of the IS services. And, and during that time, it gave us, my, me and my team, the opportunity to build a culture. Culture that was accountable, a culture that exceeded expectations, and a culture in which we were viewed as consultative and partners versus just those folks in IS. And I think building that culture has really put us in a position where we're attractive to those that we recruit. I often say, you know, I say many things, but one I, I often say is really good people like to work with other really good people. I like everybody to be accountable. They don't want Mike to always be picking up for Patty or Patty to be picking up for for Mike or whatever. Everybody wants to be accountable and we want 100% of the people to be doing 200% of the work. I think our mantra outside of corporate IS that my colleagues here look at us as, we always deliver. And it's not always easy to deliver. And so people do go above and beyond and, and members of my team are passionate and dedicated 
to exceeding those expectations and wanting to always be looked at in a favorable light. So I think that was a culture we strove to build. I've had the good fortune of working places prior in my career where I saw that culture. I thrived in that culture and I wanted to replicate that culture. Now, we are a $280 million IS operations business, annual IS operations business here. It's a big business and a big business cannot function properly without really, really good people. And I feel my teammates here are really good people. I feel our leadership here is exceptional. One of the things that caught me, and I probably haven't shared this with you before or my team is, despite the fact we're Penn Medicine, part of University of Penn trustees, we really don't have an internal managerial training program. At least we didn't. And if you look at statistics and you look at surveys, one of the top two or three reasons why people come to work every day for that employer is they like working for their manager. They respect their manager. They believe their manager has their best intentions for them with their career and their personal work-life balance and, and those types of things. Well, Penn Medicine has subsequently introduced a managerial training program, but IS did it first. We did it on our own. We went out and formed a, a program and we educated our managers on how to be not only good technically, but good personally in their management style. And that to me was one of the best things, you know, we've done within our organization. I have over a hundred managers. And often I think what you find is in a technology world, the people that become managers were the best subject matter experts in their technology. Well, I think we all know just because you're a really good C++ programmer or a really good infrastructure networking person doesn't mean you're a good people manager. And we had to bridge that gap. And we've done that through a series of internal trainings, hosting webinars, team meetings, book readings, book discussions and team discussions. And it's really elevated our ability to manage each, each of my team has now been through uh, 360 evals at twice. Uh, so they're getting feedback from all around them, their employees, their leaders, their colleagues, all those things pay dividends and their investments in people. And I think if you invest in people, they'll respect you, they'll like the culture. And the end result is really, really low turnover, really, really high retention. That's so well said. I also want to mention that, uh, you know, you also publish a biannual sort of status, the state of the union of IT and your accomplishments. And I have actually read the document. It's very informative, very well put together. Again, it's a big shout out to you and your team. And for those who are listening to this podcast or watching this, I strongly encourage downloading the document, learning a little bit about what uh, how Penn Medicine does it. Maddie, we'll be happy to share that link with you. It's our benefits realization is one document that states the financial impact corporate IS has on many of the larger projects. And we do that every two years. And then in between every two years, we do the State of the Union, as you mentioned, which sort of just highlights the big projects that we were working on, a little less on benefits, but more on the function of that particular project. And, and we do that because marketing 
our services is important. It's important to the external community to understand our end users, what we're working on, where that $280 million is going to. It's also really rewarding and refreshing to the employees to see their efforts in print and recognize that I worked on that. That was my project that I worked with that department or that center or that entity. Much like, you know, we have a lot of new buildings that are going up within the Penn Medicine community. And often people will tell me, you know, when I drive by there, I tell my kids I worked on that building. It's a sense of pride. It's a sense of ownership. And a lot of what Penn Medicine is about is, is that pride and ownership. That's so well said. And I would be interested in uh, taking a look at the benefits realization document, and I will follow up with you on that. Please. Now, we're coming up to the end of our time here, Mike, and uh, there's so much more we could uh, talk about. If you wanted to leave our listeners with one or two best practices or learnings, especially in the context of this transformation that the industry is going through, call it digital transformation, if you will, because really health is going digital in a sense. What are the maybe one or two things that you would like our listeners to take away from your experience? I think first we have to recognize the unique situation we are all in. Any individual can make a big impact in some way, shape, or form. You see that within industry. You see that within personal life and social life. Any individual can make a big difference. I happen to sit in the seat of the chief information officer. And so I have a bit more influence than most. And I think what I have found is number one, you need to be bold and you need to be selective and pick your shots and go hard at them. When I joined, as mentioned previously, one of the goals was to insource the services, but that wasn't so bold and that wasn't so, so that was sort of a, this is what you got. This is what we need you to do type of thing. I thought some of the boldness was way back then was saying we need to get to an integrated health record. And back then, you know, everybody had their own little pet product or pet solution for billing and EHRs. Every ambulatory department had their own EHR, whether it was orthopedics or GI and, and nothing connected. And, you know, I think the boldness was let's get to one and being able to fight off all the reasons that people would give you for not getting to one and continually representing what the benefits could be. And then once getting approval and still have an energy left, actually implementing that type of a solution. Today, that's not such a bold premise, but back then it, it certainly was and it makes a big difference. Today, I think when I look at what is there gonna be more of, there's gonna be more genomics, there's going to be more data. There's going to be more engagement. So that whole precision medicine approach, we're focused on. We've restructured our corporate IS team to continue to maintain our EHR and continue to do things on the research side. But now we have a team focused on bringing those two together. And that's bold and it's unique. But as you have mentioned, Penn Medicine's a pretty unique place. There's only 120 of us uh, academic medical centers. And so we need to take that to the next level and take advantage of that. Being bold and being selective and you know, leveraging your position, I think are really critical without forgetting all the run day-to-day, -day, run and maintain type of activities that have to still take place. Of course. 
make big bold steps and uh, uh, swing for the fences, as they say. Well, Mike, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time on today's conversation, but I look forward to following your work and the work of the team at Penn Medicine and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Patty, thanks for having me. And thanks again for all that you're doing for the industry and, and all of our teams. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox.